Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Um, Why don't we begin this time in God's Word and prayer? Would you join me? Our Father, we come to you um, in the name of Jesus, and because we come to you in His name, we come humbly and boldly, recognizing that you owe us nothing, and yet you have a heart to bless us. And uh, though we have all turned away from you, you have sent Jesus to provide not only forgiveness, but a hearty welcome back. And so we pray that your spirit would do the renewing work only he can do as we hear your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, would you join me in opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 6? And if you don't have a Bible, um, please grab one. There's some within reach under a seat nearby you. We'll be spending uh, this time together working carefully through um, a paragraph or two of the Bible, and so having it open in front of you uh, would be uh, helpful. So we began our series in the Gospel of Mark last fall, and we've taken a break for Advent and for a short series on renewal. And so we're, I'm excited to jump back into Mark together. We left off in the middle of chapter 6, so that's where we'll pick up again. This is one of the most well-known stories of Jesus miraculously feeding thousands of people. He'll do it again, um, and we'll look at it there as well. But this is the kind of story that is so well-known that we can tend to, once we've read it once or twice, just move on, right? Just kind of skim past it. But I want to remind us about a key reading strategy when approaching the gospel of Mark. Mark uh, wrote the gospel to be read, we could say, at two levels. So at the first level, we read and we get the main point, the main idea of the text fairly quickly. You can read through Mark in just over an hour, you can get the big picture of Jesus' ministry, His death, His resurrection. But there's also a second deeper, deeper level of reading, because Mark has written this very carefully. And so, as we read the Gospel of Mark, there's really um, a number of things we can look at, but really there's three things we need to keep in mind when reading carefully. One is the Old Testament. Mark is constantly drawing attention to echoing, alluding to the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is continuing the story of humanity and Israel from the Old Testament. Second, we read with the whole gospel of Mark in view. Mark's very carefully developing themes, repeating words, building on stories that Jesus has told and things Jesus has done for us to see, learn some lessons through the course of reading it. And then a third thing we need to notice is the very particular details Mark draws attention to, the, the words that he carefully chooses to use in describing what's happening. So Old Testament context, the context of the Mark as well, and then paying attention to details. And as we slow down and thoughtfully read the Gospel of Mark, we see that there's a lot more going on than just what we might pick up skimming the surface of the Uh, story. So we'll be doing this every week in the Gospel of Mark, considering uh, story after story in light of the Old Testament, in light of the whole Gospel of Mark, and paying close attention to what Mark's actually saying. And that's certainly important for this story. Uh, With the Old Testament background in mind, we'll see that this story is about leadership. It's especially about the leadership that we need from Jesus. And we need this because we are living in a in the midst of, we could say, a crisis of leadership. 
Our world is filled with bad leadership, right? Story after story, locally, personally, nationally, globally, um, stories exposing and bringing down leaders, many have promoted and protected leaders who misuse or abuse authority. In light of this, we can start to resist any kind of leadership or authority or power. Some say that having authority and power and leadership is um, inherently oppressive, and the best thing we can do is to equalize power and authority. That's the only way to handle it. But the truth is, we're always going to have leaders, and the issue isn't leadership, it's bad, unhealthy leadership. Influence and authority is a gift from God that He distributes unequally, but it's for the flourishing of others. And so this story of the feeding of 5,000 is a surprising answer to the problem of leadership in crisis. So let's read Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 31. We'll go to verse 34 together. We'll actually begin in verse 30 here. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men, assuming many more beyond that. The key leadership image used in this text is shepherding. And this text answers a question. What does God give to our weary and worn out world? In particular, what does God give to a world weary and worn out by bad leadership? And here's the answer. He gives us Jesus as our true shepherd. So we trust him as our shepherd leader who leads us with compassion and care. So this text gives us four insights about the leadership of Jesus as the answer to the leadership crisis of our world. I'll give them ahead of time and then we'll walk through this text. So he leads with compassion. He leads as our true shepherd. He leads by feeding his sheep. And he leads through his under-shepherds. So first, he leads from compassion or with compassion. 
The Gospel of Mark highlights Jesus' emotions quite a bit. Mark wants us to see the real Jesus, and the real Jesus is not stoic and aloof. And one of the emotions that drives the leadership of Jesus is compassion. Earlier in chapter 6, uh, we see this in a few ways. So earlier in chapter 6, Jesus sent his disciples out on ministry and mission on their own. So Jesus had taught, he had healed, he had cast out demons, those three things he's doing over and over. And then he sends out his disciples at the beginning of chapter 6 to go do those things without him, but in his authority. So they're now continuing his ministry. They're doing the same thing. And now they've just returned in verse 30, and Jesus invites them to come away from the crowds for a while and go to a desolate place, a wilderness area, to rest. So verse 31, you can see it with me. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Notice here that Jesus is intentionally finding time and space for he and his disciples to rest, to find renewal. Some people misunderstand the call to ministry and discipleship. Some think that ministry needs to be done at a breakneck pace. Um, They think that to live for Christ means you wear yourself out. You don't build in rhythms of rest and renewal. That's a mistake. Uh, Jesus himself trained his disciples for ministry, and as he trained them, he built in for them this priority of creating space for rest and renewal. One of my favorite biographies is on George Whitfield. It's a two-volume biography by Arnold Dallimore. It's amazing. And God used George Whitfield to spread the gospel uh, during the Great Awakenings of the 1700s. Just incredible. Um, that man was preaching sometimes over a dozen times a week, open air to thousands and thousands of people, traveling across the continents. And about one of the hardest parts of reading his biography was seeing how resistant he was to taking a break and to resting. He did ministry at a breakneck pace, without rest. His friends would urge him to take a break. His friends would write and urge him to rest. And he wrote um, to one friend saying, I intend to go till I drop. And Arnold Dallimore, the biographical author, adds, and sad to say, this was soon the event. He was bedridden for... um, weeks with a fever. He nearly died. He was close to the point of breakdowns over and over and over in his ministry. Um, Not ideal. It's one of the lessons from his life. One one of the things we don't want to emulate. There's plenty to emulate. There's plenty not to. It's one not to. One of the most helpful books I read last year um, was Reset. It's by uh, David Murray. I commend it to you. The subtitle gives the point of the book, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. The rate of burnout in leadership, both ministry, pastoral leadership, and just other vocational uh, leadership roles is incredibly high. Our culture is not good at rest and renewal. Many people sacrifice friendship and family for work, and then they eventually burn out. And so Jesus is showing us just how important this rhythm of rest and renewal is. So kind of a side note lesson there, but important. 
So Jesus and the disciples head away from the crowds. They go across the sea to a desolate place. And sad to say, (laughs) it doesn't actually work out for them. The crowds find out where they're going. They see them. And so they beat them to the shore. And so they're trying to get a break from ministry. And there everyone is again. So now what would your default emotion be in that crowd? I mean, I try really hard to carve out rhythms of rest and renewal. And when I'm focused on it, I can get expectations, and then I know how I would be in that moment. I would be irritated. Um, But look at Jesus in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. He has compassion. Rest and renewal is still important. He'll find time to do that. But right now, he's going to be flexible. He's going to adjust and he has compassion. This is the heart of Christ as our leader. He saw people through the lens of compassion and with a heart of compassion. Uh, B.B. Warfield, a great theologian of the early 1900s, he wrote a fascinating article called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Isn't that a great title? Um, You can find it online, Google it. Uh, He noticed how we tend to miss the biblical vision of the emotions of Christ. He said that when we emphasize um, the divinity of Jesus, we can tend to minimize his emotions, and then we come, come away with this kind of cold, stoic, aloof vision of Christ. And then he said, when we tend to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, we can tend to refer to his emotions crassly and in a way that just doesn't capture our reverence. And so he argues in this, as we see a clear, full picture of the emotions of Jesus as the divine human, truly God, truly man, that uh, we observe how the Gospels then show that he has this rich emotional life, and it should provoke reverence. So here's an example Right in our text, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Warfield noticed that compassion is the emotion most frequently attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? He refers to uh, this compassion, he says it refers to a profound internal movement of his emotional nature. That's what's happening right here. There is a profound internal movement of Christ's emotional nature right here when he sees those crowds. In other words, the real Jesus is divine and human, and his heart is deeply moved with compassion for people like us. And it still is today. The the risen Christ is not aloof from us. It's not like we see Jesus' emotions on the page of Scripture here, and we think, well, yeah, now, though, he's different. No. Uh, He is still truly God, truly man, and he knows us, and he loves us, and he's moved with compassion for us. This is who he is, and this is what drives him. This is what drives his ministry. Maybe you're in a situation in life right now, and you, you need to hear afresh this morning. The risen Lord Jesus stirs with compassion for his people in their sin and suffering. So Jesus leads from compassion, looking at these crowds. Second, he leads as our true shepherd. In verse 34, Mark tells us a specific reason why Jesus is stirred with compassion. He, he says it's because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what does it mean for sheep to not have a shepherd? Well, at a basic level, Mark is saying they, they look leaderless, right? They need a leader. They're like sheep, and they don't have their shepherd. They don't have a leader. And that's true, but this way of putting it, 
They're like sheep without a shepherd, has a long history, and Mark is drawing on it here, I'm convinced. So this phrase, like sheep without a shepherd, originally came from the mouth of Moses in Numbers 27. He was thinking about needing to pass on his ministry, and he was viewed as a shepherd of Israel. And so he says uh, this, he said, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd? And all through Israel's history, the, the leaders were viewed as shepherds. And it was important so that Israel was not like sheep without a shepherd. And there's one text in particular that highlights this theme more extensively than any other in the Old Testament. And it's Ezekiel 34. You don't need to turn there, but you can write it down. I encourage you to um, kind of read the whole chapter at some point because it's really helpful for understanding several texts where Jesus refers to himself as a a shepherd. Um, But in Ezekiel 34, God is addressing a leadership crisis in Israel. He says the leaders of Israel were supposed to be shepherds to Israel as sheep, and they have massively failed at this. So here's how Ezekiel 34 begins. Son of man, saying to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? And then he goes on to say that Israel's leaders, their shepherd leaders have been unfaithful. They've been selfish. Rather than feeding the sheep, they've been taking advantage of the sheep. And as a result, the sheep are scattered. They're, they're ready to be prey from other beasts, and they're without shepherds. And then God gives a promise that will be the solution to this leadership crisis among Israel. He says that he himself will come to God's people and be their leader. God himself will gather the sheep. He will feed the sheep. He will make them lie down in good pasture. Actually says that he'll seek and save the lost. That's where that phrase comes from. Uh, This is what God will do. God himself will come as the shepherd of God's people. Ezekiel also promises this. God will not just himself come as the true shepherd of Israel. He will also appoint a human shepherd a new David. David the king was viewed as a shepherd as well. A new human shepherd from David's line to be the shepherd king of Israel. So the answer to the, to the, the problem is that God will be the true shepherd and he will appoint a human shepherd in David's line to be the true uh, shepherd leader. Now think again now what's happening uh, right here with Jesus' feeding miracle. Jesus looks at the crowds and Mark says he has compassion on them because there is a problem. They're like sheep without a shepherd, echoing this line from Moses and this theme through the Old Testament. In other words, Israel's leadership crisis that God was speaking to in Ezekiel 34 has not yet been resolved. Israel still is like sheep without a shepherd here. They're still scattered without faithful shepherds. And Mark shows us this from beginning to end in his account of the gospel through this whole book. When the leaders see Jesus heal people, what do they do? They get angry. When the leaders see him forgive sins, they're incensed. It's very quick in, I mean, just within the first couple, few chapters here of Mark's gospel that they're planning on killing Jesus because he's being really kind to people, right? Because he's loving and serving people as a shepherd should. And so they want to kill him. And then just before this feeding of the 5,000, We see a contrast here with Herod, 
uh, this kind of king-like figure for Israel as well. It's been a few months now, so you may not remember what he was like, but the short of it is this. Um, in the middle of chapter 6 here, he throws a drunken party, and he had his niece dance provocatively, and so he promised to do anything for her, and she, with the influence of her mom, decided that they would like to request the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and so he agrees, and John the Baptist is killed, beheaded. Um, that's the kind of leadership Israel has. So right after that story, we see Jesus look at Israel and say they're like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, the leadership crisis has not been solved here. It's a centuries-long crisis. Jesus has come to be their true shepherd. And what do the true shepherds do for their sheep? They feed them. So third, Jesus leads by feeding his sheep. And he leads them in two ways, and both of them are important here. First, he feeds them with his word. One of the most striking verses in the Gospel of Mark for me as a teacher is verse 34, and I hope it's encouraging for any of you teaching, and especially if you have a role of teaching God's Word in various settings. So, Jesus has compassion on the crowds. They need a shepherd, and what does He do? It says this, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and He began to teach them many things. So, what does Jesus do when he's drawn to lead people out of a heart of compassion? He teaches them. Uh, no doubt in the Gospel of Mark, this fits in with the theme of Jesus teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, the dawning of God's reign in and through Jesus in the midst of his ministry, calling people to repent and believe the good news of God's reign through him. And no doubt other things we see with the content of Jesus' teaching. Uh, through the Gospel of Mark and elsewhere. And so, all through the New Testament, one of the essential roles of church leaders is to teach people God's Word. God's Word is our spiritual food. Jesus Himself said we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, it's our spiritual soul nourishment, is hearing God's Word, letting it uh, work inside of us and nourish us. So, my job here is not mainly to entertain you all, but to give you God's Word, right? I'm a means that God uses through His Word to feed His Word, and I'm eating this with you, being nourished with you. We're hearing God's Word. We're responding to God's Word. We're being fed God's Word. And so, Jesus teaches them. And second, He feeds them with real food, tangible food. I want to use the word real, um, because both are real food, just different, but with, you know, the food you chomp on. So, now we're getting to the heart of the story. Uh, since it's getting later in the day, the disciples tell Jesus, send the crowds away to buy food. Interesting. The problem with Israel is that they're scattered, and the disciples say, just scatter them, send them away. Seems reasonable at one level. It's 5,000 men, probably women and children too, and Jesus tells them to feed the crowd. And they respond with, an interesting response here in verse 37, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Probably like six to nine months of wages. They probably don't have that kind of money on them. So Jesus tells them, check and see how much food you have, how many loaves they have. And so they must have felt like that was bizarre. They don't know perhaps the exact number without checking how many loaves they have, but they know whether it's one or 20, they're not going to be feeding thousands of people. And notice the vivid detail in verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. 
mean, there's so much to see here. And there are groups in, in gathered in certain numbers too, in 50s. And so Jesus is bringing order to this group. There's echoes here of Exodus as well, and Israel being separated into groups like this of hundreds and fifties and tens, and Moses being their shepherd, and then Moses feeding them. Um, so that's another picture here of Jesus leading um, in that way. But notice as well, what's with the green grass? Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups, not just on the ground, not even just on the grass, on the green grass. Why mention grass? Why mention that it's green? Well, some think, well, because that's what happened. You know, it's what it was there. And so I probably no doubt this is, you know, Peter and Mark were close. This is eyewitness detail, all true. Um, the grass was there, so Mark mentions it. But seriously, why draw attention to it like this, especially with how careful Mark is? To detail, and why mention in verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied? Well, I think Mark is helping us to see this shepherding theme again. He's using shepherding and sheep imagery here. It sounds a lot like Ezekiel 34, that Old Testament text I mentioned a bit ago. So here's Ezekiel 34, verses 14 to 15. Remember, God says He will come as the true shepherd and says this I will feed them with good pasture where they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they will feed on the mountains or the, uh, the hills of Israel. And this all sounds a lot like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They all ate and were satisfied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus had them lie down on the green grass. So this story is showing us something profound about Jesus' identity. He is the one who fulfills the expectations of Ezekiel 34, that God himself would come to his people to be their true shepherd. And he is also the one whom God promised would come as the true human king from David's line, the true and better King David who would shepherd Israel. You may come across uh, someone who says, you know, the early Christians made up the divinity of Jesus. Um, especially this idea that uh, He is equal with the Father, and you have this Trinity idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, they'll, they'll say that, you know, Mark was written very early, probably the earliest gospel written, uh, many would say, and it doesn't say anywhere explicitly, you know, Jesus is God. Mark doesn't just say, look, it's Jesus, He's God. But then you read the Gospel of John, which looks like it was written later in the first century, and it's unmistakable. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Thomas is confessing by the end, my Lord and my God. So what happened between the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John? Well, the Christians kind of developed the idea of the divinity of Jesus. But as we go through the Gospel of Mark, every page makes it clear that Jesus is God in the flesh. Mark just goes about it differently. He does not come out and say explicitly all the time, Jesus is God, but he does constantly show that the things Jesus does, stilling storms, feeding miracles, um, forgiving sins, and the things he says about himself, causing the high priest to rip his shirt in front of him by, the chap by chapter 14, the things he says, the things he does make it unmistakable who he is. <laughs> he is God in the flesh. Truly God, truly man. So here's the last insight from the story. Jesus leads through his under-shepherds. 
Uh, we refer to this story as the one where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and that's true. Jesus is the one who does the miracle. But did you notice who actually does the distributing, who actually does the feeding? It wasn't Jesus. It was the disciples. Because this story is not just about Jesus being the true shepherd. It's about Jesus raising up more shepherds. In fact, Jeremiah also speaks about the leadership crisis of Israel in the Old Testament, and it says that God will, will raise up shepherds, good shepherds for God's people. So look again at verse 37. The disciples asked Jesus to send the people away, and Jesus says, you give them something to eat. The crowd's like a flock of sheep without a shepherd. They need shepherds to feed them. His disciples aren't taking the responsibility of caring for them. They want Jesus to send them away, but Jesus is inviting the disciples to take responsibility. He's inviting them to become the new leaders of this new renewed Israel to care for the people. Of course, he knows they can't feed them. Jesus is always setting things up like this. He does something and says something strange to someone. You're like, what is he doing? And then you see, oh, he's, he's kind of staging a miracle or a conversation here to, in order to teach and instruct. And so, Jesus has them go see how much they have. So, they go and get their five loaves and two fish. And then look at verse 41. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. So Jesus had been training his disciples to participate in his ministry from the beginning. And in the stories just before this, in chapter 6, he sent them out on their own. He, he's got training wheels on their bikes, and he's slowly teaching them how to get their balance. And then he'll take the training wheels off because he's going to be gone, exalted to heaven and leading through the Spirit in them one day but they won't have him physically among them in the same way. So he's teaching them how to carry on his ministry and mission. So Jesus is the true shepherd, and he's raising up shepherds to continue his ministry. They'll eventually learn. I think of Peter, who was one of those who was part of this um, moment. And decades later, he wrote a letter to a church we know we call it First Peter. And here's what he says to the elders of the church in that letter. He says, so I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So churches are flocks, and they have shepherds called elders. And he says, not domineering over those in your charge, like the wicked, unfaithful shepherds throughout Israel's leadership crisis, but being examples to the flock. So the elders of churches are shepherds of flocks. And then Peter reminds us of Jesus. And listen to what he calls Jesus. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So elders are shepherds, but then we also have a chief shepherd, Jesus. The word shepherd is where we get the word pastor. It's a pastoral word. So Peter is saying the elders of churches are pastors. They're shepherds. And Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor. But he leads through his word and by his spirit through these under-shepherds. So that's how Jesus is leading his people. So let's just bring this together with a few final implications here. First, uh, let's not be surprised that we live in a culture with a leadership crisis. We are not the first ones. This, is, this was Israel's story from the beginning to end. And that's what we have a direct window into with the Old Testament. And we get this little glimpse of the outside nations through the Old Testament. And certainly other historical writings give us indications. This whole planet has been in a leadership crisis 
ever since sin entered the world. And this is why Ezekiel promised that God would come to be the true shepherd. And Jesus said first century Israel was like sheep without a shepherd. And it was certainly like this across the Roman world as the gospel spread in the first century. And so our culture today is experiencing, to one degree or another, a leadership crisis. Many misuse and abuse power. Many lead without any depth of character or concern for it. And the gospel of Mark affirms that this is a problem. It affirms this is not ideal. To say that Israel was like sheep without a shepherd was to indict the leaders of that day. And Jesus indicted them because they misused and abused their authority. They were selfish, they were evil, they were forceful. And so this story is here to lead us to look to Jesus as the one who's come as our true leader. He's the true shepherd king of his people. So together with the Father and the Spirit, he decided to come to us. He experienced the fullness of eternal joy in the triune fellowship of the Trinity and stirred with compassion for us. He had a perfect compassion, perfect love for us. And he came considering our sinful state because we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each one of us to our own way. And yet he looked on us with compassion, just like he looked on those crowds. And with perfect compassion and love, uh, he came and he lived among us, and he showed us that he's our true shepherd, and he didn't just come to feed and teach us, but to give his life for us. So he says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And so as he went to the cross, it's amazing to think about in light of this story, as he went to the cross, the current sinful shepherd leaders of Israel end up taking his life and the shepherd leaders of Rome as well. They're all together, taking the life of Jesus, crucifying him, acting out what false shepherds do in condemning him uh, to death. But Jesus himself, in that moment, is giving his life as the greatest act of a selfless shepherd for his sheep. He's laying down his life for the sheep. And so he received upon himself the eternal suffering that we deserve, And then he rose, and now he leads us as our truest shepherd, even right now in the midst of other examples of poor leadership in life. So if you are listening to this and you're not yet a Christian, this is how you become one. Jesus invites you to be part of his flock. You acknowledge that you are a sheep who has left your truest shepherd, and you see that this shepherd has come for you. He's given his life for you, and he rose again. And now he's sending his spirit out to give people new hearts so that they'll come to him and come back to him. And so trust him. Let him forgive you. Let him teach you. Let him feed you. Let him lead you. Second, let's continue to value and raise up shepherds for God's flock. So we don't just look to Jesus in the midst of our leadership crisis. We look to him to provide more and more faithful shepherds. So Jesus' example as a shepherd sets the pace for church leadership. He leads from compassion. He's teaching. He meets our needs. One of the ways He cares for us is by appointing leaders in the church, both elders and deacons, to care for sheep in different ways. So this is why we take the qualifications 
as shepherds, elders, seriously as a church? Is this why we want to consider how to raise up more elder shepherds and pastors and train pastors for the church, not just our church, but other churches? And so I want to say in light of this too, thank you for your patience with uh, your shepherds uh, as we seek to lead you imperfectly under our chief shepherd, Jesus. So thank you for praying for us as well and ask you to do that. Uh, Third implication, I want to encourage you uh, as parents here, those of you who are parents, um, you're called to care for your family as a shepherd cares for a flock. Um, One of my favorite books on parenting is called Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's a great book. This is especially the responsibility of a father in the family. Um, And there's a sense in which a father and mother jointly participate in that work of shepherding as well. And if you are a single mother, this responsibility would be yours in your family, and you're entrusted with this. You have the privilege of caring for your family like a flock to listen to and follow the shepherding ministry of Jesus as our chief shepherd over our family and our souls. And so this involves both kinds of feeding that Jesus did, the teaching and the feeding of food, right? And so the most obvious role of a parent is to give food, keep kids and families alive, right? Uh, The less obvious one, but in some ways uh, more important, is the food that leads to eternal life which is the Word of God. And so we have a role to feed our families God's Word. One one of the things I just did not give thought to before becoming a dad was just how much joy I would get reading the Bible out loud as a family day after day. If you don't have that practice, I encourage you to do it. It's been one that Christians have done for centuries, called by different language like family worship involving other things, but just opening God's Word and reading through it, reading through the Gospel of Mark, reading through other books, and hearing the voice of our shepherd. It's a privilege. And then finally, uh, this vision of leadership has implications for all leadership. So not just leadership in the church and and the home. We are living in some difficult times with the political leaders at the highest levels of our nation. So many of the leaders who end up running or getting appointed to the highest offices have major character issues. Not all of them, and thank the Lord for that, but we recognize many of them do, and so this is why voting has been so hard for so many of us for so many years. Um, And so here's a framework that we need. We need to recognize that God has given the world both church government and civil government, and both are given by God, and both require good leadership. And so here's a framework that helps us think about what to expect with in certain leaders. So there's a difference between what we can call special grace and common grace. Special grace, the special grace of salvation and sanctification, that is required for leaders in the church. We cannot expect that of every civil government leader, but we do require it for church leaders. This special grace of being converted to know the Lord and being sanctified and being a pace setter in godliness, that's required in church government. And we can't have that same expectation for all civil government roles. And yet, while we don't expect everyone in civil government to be a godly Christian, we do still look for common grace, and we pray for that. Character does matter, and that means when a person runs for office, their character should matter. So we aren't asking 
anyone to be our pastor when they're running for those office roles, uh, but we are asking them to contribute to the flourishing of the communities that we're a part of and to represent us um, in many ways. And so their demeanor and tone matters. Their policies matter. And whether or not they lead to the taking or the giving of life and the flourishing of communities, their character matters. So the point is that the leadership vision of Jesus matters for all leadership, even though we have different expectations in the church and in other offices of governance. And so a great example of this is 1 Timothy. In that letter, Paul gives Timothy qualifications for elders and deacons of the church. Um, They need to be godly pace-setters in the church. And then he also calls us to pray for government leaders like this. He says this in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, okay? Everyone in a high position. He's saying pray for them. Why? What do we pray for? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in any ways. There, there are certain kinds of leaders we could appoint in this nation that make it really hard for Christians to lead quiet and godly lives, dignified in every way. So pray for there to be stability and peace and freedom. And he says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, namely like those kinds of people as well, kings and those in high positions. He desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we pray for that saving grace for them. And Short of that, we pray that the Lord would put people there that can help us flourish as community. So we should pray for them, that their decisions and their policies would lead to flourishing. So, in light of all of this, we're all living in the midst of a lot of heartache, a disappointment, frustrations with failed leadership. Some of us have failed in significant ways as leaders. And so we're listening to voices talk about these things. Sometimes we don't even know... know, know how to sort out what's even true. Is that a, that person was accused of that? That would be terrible if it happened. Did it happen? If I question it, am I now viewed as protecting that person? I mean, it, we're in some hard times here, right? And so in the midst of this, one of the things that the gospel of Mark gives us is the vision of Jesus as our true leader. And Mark is saying, he has come. The true shepherd has arrived. Now we're still waiting for him to come again and set everything new, make everything new, and set everything right. But he's come, and he is reigning as our shepherd king right now, and he is working by his Holy Spirit uh, to lead his sheep to hear his voice, to raise up leaders, and so we want to be fed. We want to listen to him. That's what he says in John 10 when he says he's a good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, so we want to listen. He's been feeding us this morning through his word. He feeds you as you open his word to hear him, and as you speak to one another about God's word. He's leading us. He's leading us by the Holy Spirit as he takes his word and changes our hearts and convicts us of sin and encourages us. So let's be grateful for the leadership of Jesus. Let's receive it. Let's eat the food he's giving day by day and Sunday morning by Sunday morning as well. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for caring for us and our needs. Thank you for um, your care for us in our crisis. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for having compassion on us, seeing that we have so often been like sheep without a shepherd. So many of us have failed in shepherding roles, and we have all gone astray from you. So we thank you for not only being our leader, but laying your life down for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your renewing work to be near to us, to give us new hearts and to transform us and to open our ears to hear the words of our shepherd. And so, Father, Son, and Spirit, we honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.